This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 47, our look at what might be the big stories of the next 6 to 12 months in Nashville. Plus, from the vault, a section from September 2021, which looked at the implications of the then-newly-approved ELF test by FDA. This conversation follows from the last discussion about the role of multiple biomarker tests in the diagnostic process, as outlined in recent guidelines from several societies. Louise Campbell points out that in the UK, many primary care physicians do not perform even basic liver tests, which makes it impossible to compute FIB4. I ask whether publicizing guidelines like the ACE or EASL guidelines will speed uptake of FIB4, but Louise expresses her doubts and Jorn agrees for now. However, you know, German physicians have tremendous freedom, which means they might not respond today, but will with sufficient education and advocacy from the hepatology community about why an early FIB4 test matters and how you need to get AST and ALT results to execute that. Louise suggests the best hope we have to change UK behavior is the perverse incentive of avoiding prescribing new expensive medications too often, which will happen when drugs get approved. As the conversation wraps up, Jorn begins to segue from the future of care pathways to the exciting future of drug development. We're heading into an exciting time in Nashville. For example, our episode next week discusses four recent press releases from companies with promising clinical trial results. Today's conversation blends the excitement about those kinds of upcoming advances in drugs and diagnostics with questions about whether the underlying structure exists to take advantage of the new technologies as they evolve. It raises as many questions as it answers, if not more. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Louise Campbell. It absolutely makes sense. There are multiple hurdles in the way. One of them is most areas, certainly in the UK, don't do all of the blood tests that are required for FIB4. And whether or not we have to come back to an algorithm in healthcare that detects most diseases. And therefore, we're finding disease early or the highest risk stratification early. And there will be a set for cardiac. There will be a set for endocrine. So combining the common strengths and saying that all bloods should include X, Y and Z and covering the biggest amount of bases so that there's less holes in your net, I suppose, if you were catching fish. The other thing, particularly in endocrinology, and the evidence seems to be there from Arzold, is that the higher the BMI and the greater the risk of type 2 diabetes, the less some of the biomarkers work. So it's, it is about looking for the right test, but it's also looking for the right tests in the right population and how we envisage them because what we don't want is a high negative predictor in somebody with a BMI of over 40 who's got type 2 diabetes because actually well, that's what we're going to find if we look at the blood values of FIB4 and from my knowledge. So we already know that a lot of people feel safe if they've got normal liver function tests with their patient and we know that's incorrect and vice versa. It is a difficult one to say which one do you do first, which one do you do, you do second, when do you do them? For me it would be picking up these diseases or the risks before they develop the disease when these tests are going to be most accurate in a biomarker format. But that's just the way I align and think from wellness rather than necessarily always about illness, because to be on what we discuss, you've already got to be a patient with a silent disease. The majority of patients with NAFLD and NASH are still silent until they get cancer and different mechanisms. Those are hurdles we've got to come across in the best way possible for patients. So it is education, but it's education of everywhere. And I think when we did our fatty liver clinics, it was a hepatologist and a fibroscan team that sat in our 
endocrine clinics in real time and did that, it would be nice to see a hepatologist, an endocrine um, consultant in a big hepatology clinic, because that would add, certainly to my knowledge, when I was sitting in there of HbA1c, how it was affecting, how we better manage, where we place the physicians, it could be either or and both. We always have nurse specialists within some of those clinics. There's lots of opportunities, but I think there are hurdles with some of the tests that we've got, particularly in the diabetes population that we're looking at. Louise, let me ask you a question. The ACE guidelines, which were promoted last May, make it very, very clear that for diabetic patients, the recommendation is don't even think about NAFL, assume everybody has it. And the only goal is to figure out who's fibrotic and who's fibrotic at, at, at who's F2 or higher, really. How do you envision that message playing through the system? Well, do you? And if so, how do you envision playing through the system in practical terms in the next 6, 12, 24 months? And then, Yoran, I'm going to ask you exactly the same question. I think it depends what happens in everybody's healthcare system. We've obviously got NICE going through at the moment, accessing FibroScan for primary care, which is one area you could use it, particularly if you've already got a Fib4 or you've got a diabetic population. There's evidence from Arzold, I can't remember the name of the author, who was suggesting that actually you do FibroScan before in that population because you will pick up more people because of the disparity in the blood tests as the BMI rises in that population. So it depends on your pathway. Going back to the question originally, most physicians don't necessarily do AST and ALT, which means Fib4 and other tests um, ratio can't be used. We do have to standardise tests to get the biggest uptake. For me, that's where we need to start. Yes, we can assume everybody's got fatty liver. The problem is most people don't think their population has fatty liver because if that was the case, it would be addressed in primary care. So people don't see that population. We do. We know that around about 69 to 80% of patients with type 2 diabetes will have fatty liver disease, but 30% can be metabolically fit of people who are live with obesity, for example. So being one size fits all is not. So we do have to find the better tests we do have to look at, but we have to start with being able to do the tests routinely across healthcare and not just assume it happens because lots of people don't do those tests. Even here up to 75% of primary care do not do ALT and AST as a routine test. So therefore we couldn't even include FIB4. Okay. So Louise, one quick follow-up. Sorry, you're in probability answer. What is the probability that over the next year, British Liver Trust, ACE guidelines, everything else that's converging will lead to an increased use of FIB4 or the test necessary to conduct FIB4 at primary care in the UK. If I put a gun to your head, what would the answer? This, this is the week in, Jew, in Jewish lore when you were written in the Book of Life or the Book of Death. Okay, stay alive. What's the answer? I think very little will change because each individual area doesn't see liver health as a priority. It doesn't actually look at it. They'll just see it as a cost and the cost to the test. So I don't think, I know we want it, but I think most people will still see it as a cost that they're not prepared to bear because they don't understand or appreciate the actual size of the burden that we are talking about. So I don't think a lot will happen. So Joran, what does that dynamic look like today and going forward in the rest of Europe, for example, where I know you're doing a lot of public health work or even in the US as you see it? Joran Schattenberg. I'm aligned with Louise that these tests are not necessarily all done in the cases where we would want them in order to identify these patients. But that's why I'm so excited to go and actually speak with my endocrinologist because I have simple tools now that I can highlight. That's the way forward uh, to 
should do this. And Luis rightfully mentioned, you know, or highlighted, we're not detecting steatosis now, which is a metabolic risk factor, which carries implications, which means you can empower your patient to change things. This would be more um, complex. I think for a start, albeit imperfect, I would favor to identify the advanced cases to be able to then link them to care in terms of potentially either lifestyle, but in the future drugs, of course. The public health system Europe is very dependent on which country you operate on. Louise mentioned the UK. Um, in Germany, there's a lot of individual physicians prescriber freedom. They won't. They will do whatever they want. And to really convince them and change their behavior, you need to do CMEs with them. You got to go out and educate them in meetings. And I think that's what the last three meetings was all about. And that's why I, I highlighted that as an excitement. There's not going to be a top-down dictate of you have to do FIP4. The only way it can be established, I think, is through going ground ground roots here, um, educating peers and, and really convincing them that this is something that identifies relevant patients. It's also linked to outcome. Now, we don't even want that test to be an outcome predictor, but it's strong enough and we have enough data to even link it to outcome. So this is another argument for physicians to actually identify these patients because they do worse. And then, then I think it's justified to have suggest them for intensified management. That makes sense. Of everything I've seen on this in the last six months, I think the most compelling case for FIB4 in primary care is the one you, you just alluded to, which is that it is prognostic of all-cause mortality and of cardiovascular mortality, and it's prognostic of those even if you take age out, because obviously FIB4 is responsive to age, and that's a factor. But if you take age out and simply look at the rest of the FIB4 calculation, it has independent prognostic value, which would be an argument that goes primary care wants to look at that to understand in the metabolic mix how much risk their patients are at in addition to simply whether they've got liver fibrosis or not. The thing that will really shift the paradigm to doing a lot more of these tests and mating the routine is the minute we have a drug available. If we look at abetacolic acid, the average cost, I believe, for somebody with PBC who gets access to it is around about £29,000. Now, that is a 10 milligram dose. Now, if we look at going through the NASH pathway, that is a 25 milligram dose. Will they keep that in the same price range? Will they increase it? But the minute you have a patient needing a drug that's going to be managed on 29, 30 or 40,000 pounds a year, that incentivizes a GP, primary care and the entire networks to say, you must add this test to the blood that you're drawing. Because by picking up early detection, we will then avoid the majority of patients needing a beta-colic acid, resmeterone, um, and the next one's through. So I think whilst I'm not a great fan of we need a very expensive drug to start doing what we should be doing, which is screening, what I am a fan of is that pushes the right buttons for people to start to take notice. Is that what we call a perverse incentive? It is definitely what I think we call a perverse incentive because we all know that most healthcare systems around the world react to illness. They do not go for prevention and looking at prevention now while you're reacting to illness, particularly post-COVID, means they've got a double whammy, if not a triple whammy of expenses. You're the statistician. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah. it's, a, it's a shame, but that it is perverse. You, well, you get perverse incentives of unintended consequences and the paradox of choice all into one bundle there if you want to look at it. Go ahead. Just to to follow up quickly, I mean, the price can possibly in the same range, right? So we're talking about an orphan disease and drug range, but it's still probably not going to come for free. And I I think it replicates what you said. I mean, there's going to be the incentive, even if it's not the same numbers here. And of course, the the availability of a drug is, in my view, around the corner. And maybe that segues us to the next section without wanting to hijack your moderator skills here, Roger. The next month is going to produce 
produce so much exciting data that we're really entering the discussion with the colleagues of which of my patients should receive treatment. And that's where we revisit this theme of identify them easy, cheap, and select them and send them to us for future treatment. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week to discuss exciting advances in drug development as highlighted by recent press releases from Acara, Poxel, Altimmune, and Excella. In the meantime, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.